Okay, welcome. Uh, I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shore Institute Center on Press Politics and Public Policy. And it's my great pleasure to have you join us today. We have a distinguished guest who is uh, fresh from one of the most complicated places, of course, in the world that seems to be getting more complicated by the hour. Mm -hmm. We were just having a chat about the prospects of, uh, of a of an attack on Iran by Israel, um, and where we go now that Iran has thrown the nuclear inspectors out, and how this, of course, shapes the whole uh, prospects of, of not only the region, but the world. Um, this young woman next to me's name is Lourdes, but she prefers to be called Lulu. So I'm not being disrespectful. Uh, she is a, uh, an experienced and uh, much admired correspondent for National Public Radio. She's been in many parts of the world. Um, originally, were you born in Cuba? No, I was born in London, actually, but my parents are Cuban. Uh, okay. And uh, has been a journalist and one who has traveled the world and uh, is not even sure where she's headed next. But she has been for since 2009 in Jerusalem, before that was in Iraq. And so this part of the world is something of a specialty for us. And we uh, really are very glad to have you. Thank you. Okay. Um, I'm going to play a little bit of audio through this because I'm a radio correspondent, so I'm going <laughs> to enliven things slightly with uh, how we do things in the radio world. But I wanted to start by saying I'm not going to talk about Iran right away, um, despite the, uh, the thing. So in case you're expecting some big in-depth analysis of the Israeli-Iran conflict, that's not where I'm going with this. In fact, um, I was speaking to my husband in preparation for this talk, and he asked me what the subject was, and uh, I told him, war and women in the Middle East. And he rolled his eyes and he said, oh, that. <laughs> I'm, I can imagine you don't really want to know uh, the extensive, rather biting argument that followed. Um, the marital death was cold that night. Um, let me just say, my husband is a pretty enlightened guy. He's uh, a journalist. Uh, he works for the Times of London. He's been in the Middle East for years. He's one of the smartest people I know. And his reaction was, oh, that. So first off, let me say to the men in the audience, thank you for coming. <laughs> um, I was actually invited to Harvard uh, here today to speak because I am a woman. And I was told by a friend who studies here, who um, shall remain nameless, so I'm looking at him, um, they'd like more women's vo voices here, and that's, you know, a great and important thing. Um, I bring this up because before I get onto the substance of what I talk, um, I want to make one thing clear. Whenever you talk about women in the Middle East, um, women's rights and their struggles, it's not just an issue in the Middle East. Um, there are many who, for political purposes, will tell you or have you believe that it's particular to the Arab world, that it's a problem that you face distinctly in the Arab world. Um, that's complete and utter crap. It's not true. And I just want to say that I've worked in a lot of countries, and there are issues that are unique to the Middle East, certainly, and I'll be talking about them. Um, but women, you know, as you know, struggle everywhere. In Guatemala, two women a day are murdered. Two uh, a day, uh, usually by jealous partners. Uh, in India, the practice of female infanticide. Uh, in parts of Africa, systematic rape is a weapon of war. But the Arab Spring and the regional changes in the Middle East has provided women with distinct opportunities and immense challenges. Um, we are in absolutely uncharted waters in the Middle East these days. Um, as a journalist, it's exciting. It's thrilling, it's frequently frightening um, to see what's happening. Before you go out to an interview and you could pretty much, as a journalist, predict what someone was going to say, you knew what was going to come out of their mouth um, because it was a moribund region. Um, it was stultified in so many different ways. People really hadn't sort of found their voice. And now you go out and people are literally making it up minute by minute. Um, there's a confusing array of new actors, empowered groups, conflicts, connections, it's really dynamic and it's really fluid. Um, you go out on any given night on the streets of Cairo and you'll find a sort of a throbbing megapolis where things are messy, but they're happening. They're really, really happening. People are just out there trying to figure things out in a way that, that I don't think that we've seen in a generation. So indulge me for a moment. Um, I'm going to use a little radio trick. I'm going to play some sound for you. I'm going to take you somewhere. I'm going to take you briefly to the streets of Cairo on one recent chilly winter night. All right. All right. The traffic is
crawling by, and in the distance people approach where we're standing, uh, chanting slogans against the military, um, the, the military junta that, that controls Egypt now. Um, they're young, they're huddled in sweaters and hats, they're marching through the narrow alleyways of neighborhoods all over the capital to get their message out. And there are many, many women among them. I mean, they're out in a neighborhood they don't know, with men they don't necessarily know, and there's a lot, a lot of women. Now, the revolutions across the Arab world have allowed women in a vital way to be a part of the story. Um, yes, partly that's a class issue. Many of the women who came out in these revolutions were part of a more empowered, educated elite. But certainly that isn't the whole picture. Women from all classes, um, for the first time, felt they had a voice, they had a role to play in the unfolding drama. Um, whether it was cooking meals at the front lines in Libya, uh, whether it was tending to the wounded in Bahrain, uh, whether it was dodging tear gas canisters in Tahrir in Cairo. And then the elections came. And I'm going to speak about Egypt here because the situation in Tunisia is slightly different. Only 2% of the new Egyptian parliament will be comprised of women. 2%. That's shockingly low by anyone's standards. And Libya looks like it will follow suit. Egypt and now Libya's electoral commission um, basically decided to institute a quota system, which means there's no minimum for representation for women. And so women were simply not voted in. In almost all cases, liberal as well as religious parties, liberal parties actually, um, basically put women so low down on the party lists that no one had a chance of being voted into office. Um, beyond that, people didn't vote for the female candidates that were running independently. They just actually didn't actually cast their ballots for them. So, to understand the mindset, I'm going to tell you an anecdote here. I was um, in Cairo, I was just speaking to a very well-known Middle East analyst. Very well-known. And uh, he shall remain nameless. <laughs> do we see him regularly on television? Yes, you do. <laughs> but we were talking about the revolution in Egypt. And, uh, and he was speaking so passionately about what had changed, what, what had happened in Egypt, how it had shifted, and how the Arab, Arab soul had awakened and burst forth. It was really sort of compelling poetic stuff. It was impressed by the vocabulary. But when I asked him about women's rights and minority rights, he shrugged his shoulders. Uh, he said, uh, political freedom and democracy first, then all the other stuff can be addressed. <laughs> Honey, it's okay. Like those were the details, you know, pesky and eventually we're going to confront them at some later date, women's rights, you know. Um, he used the example of America, how you had achieved freedom and democracy and then civil and women's rights followed much later. He was saying that's going to be the timetable for here too. So I took this particular hypothesis to uh, Dalia Ziada. Um, she's a 30-year-old woman's activist. She's one of my favorite people that I've met recently. She's amazing. I mean, this is a woman who's overcome almost unimaginable difficulties. Uh, she was circumcised when she was a child. The agony of that made her work um, made her work to eradicate female circumcision in Egypt, which is still a very common practice. Um, during the revolution, she stood in Tahrir with the men, and then she ran for parliament. She expected, she hoped, that all this change would translate into something tangible for women. She was disappointed. I'm going to play a few excerpts of an interview I had with her, because I think it's not only my voice you want to hear, but it's people there, hers. Mm -hmm. And this is what she replied when I told her what that analyst who said, ah, women's rights, someday, mm -hmm. said. Uh, that does not make sense for me. Women were there from day one, and they they are essential part of their society. Uh, they should not be marginalized. If we need real democracy, real democracy, which is not only voting, which is going to the polls and voting, as that said, but real democracy that comes with civil rights, with freedoms, with human rights and women's rights, we should empower women first and foremost, and then comes anything else. But it really hurts us so much. When, when, when you see the same people whom you were with in that square that day fighting against this regime and, and calling on this regime to be down are now turning against you and saying it's not your time now. Okay, um, Dahlia isn't one to mince her words and this is where she sees the women's movement now in Egypt. Before the revolution and after the revolution women are still seen as second degree citizen, and I'm so sorry to say this, uh, but this is a fact, and uh, still people see uh, women as marginalized, and she has certain roles to play, and she cannot play uh, like leadership roles in their community. They always come second, and men are always superior to them. 
But the only difference is that our expectations as women and as people who believe in women's rights after the revolution is that we thought that we are like all the other citizens. Everyone won what he needed. Some won their dignity back. Some won the hope that they were looking for. And our hope was to to be part of this, you know, to be um, to feel that uh, we are as equal as we always wanted to be. Okay. Um, so there you have it, Dalia Ziada, with her how she feels after the revolution, the particular feeling of a, of a female activist who really went out into the streets, tried to do as much as she could, and then has felt incredibly disappointed by the by what has happened subsequently. Um, you know, women are struggling in the wake of these revolutions. Um, and as Dali points out, it is almost impossible to have an equitable society where women aren't represented. Is the situation worse now in Egypt than it was before, or in Libya, or in any of these places? No. But it isn't better. Um, and that's been a crushing blow to many women in the region. And now, of course, I'm going to come to what uh, some wags call the Islamist winter that has come after the Arab Spring. <laughs> and there are legitimate fears, uh, undoubtedly, about the huge win of Islamist groups and what that means for women across the region, um, especially since these newly empowered parties will be drafting the basic laws of their respected countries in the form of constitutions. They have an enormous power. But there are two schools of thought on what will happen now. Um, how this will unfold. Will the Islamists cater to their base and their ideology and craft something that will curtail women's freedoms? Or will pressure and accountability because of the very democratic system that they're now a part of make them more sensitive to the issue? We don't know yet. I mean, that's the honest truth. We don't know which way this is going to go. Some of the women's activists feel incredibly hopeful that they will be able to use the democratic freedoms that the revolutions have brought and take that, that message to the Islamist groups. Others feel that uh, it's indeed an Islamist winter and women's rights will suffer tremendously. We have to see, we don't know yet. And I'm gonna talk about myself briefly. <laughs> because one of the questions I always get is what it's like to be a female correspondent um, in the Middle East. Um, and since especially the horrific attack on CBS's Lara Logan in Tahrir Square, people have focused on women correspondents and the dangers they face. Um, I have to say, among my female colleagues um, who do what I do, who go into war zones and get shot and are basically badass, um, there is a debate as to what has come out of that attention. What does that mean? You know, what is Lara's attack and the, and the light that is shone on the issue, what does that mean for us now? When this happened, my male editors, um, and I'm right behind you is uh, Jonathan Blakely, who is a producer at NPR, who is now studying uh, as a fellow here. Um, so he'll know what I'm talking about. <laughs> After this happened, my male editor said, um, has this ever happened to you? Um, do you often get harassed? And many of my female colleagues had a similar conversation with their male editors. This was something that was an open secret among us. We'd even joke about it. A female photographer, a friend of mine, would ask tongue-in-cheek, hey, where do you get groped more, at an Islamic Jihad funeral or at a Hamas one? Uh, we women in the field have all dealt with varying degrees of sexual harassment and even attacks, but we rarely talk to our bosses about it. Why? Well, just look what happened after Lara Logan's brave coming public of, uh, of what she did, speaking out publicly about what had happened to her. All of a sudden, people were saying women shouldn't be sent to war zones. Mm -hmm. Shouldn't be sent to war zones, particularly in the Middle East. That because we were vulnerable to a specific kind of attack, and so therefore we shouldn't be there. Countless men were assaulted during the period by Mubarak's thugs, but no one said men shouldn't be allowed to cover the story. Some women are in our industry believe that we should pretend that we're just like men, and highlight the fact that we can go where men go and do what men do, uh, which we can, by the way. Uh, I'd even go further and say we often, especially in the Middle East, do more than men can do. We are invited to the back rooms where women sit, and we can talk to them and tell their stories because we are women, we have access to the often silent 50% of the population. And we also, you know, kick ass on the front lines. So looking at the recent conflict in Libya, the voices that you heard telling those stories were often women. Alex Crawford of Sky News, Leila Fadel of the Washington Post, there's many more. But we do absolutely run a different kind of risk, and one that many of us have repeatedly faced. I've been harassed innumerable times, roped, catcalled. Luckily, I've never faced the frenzied mob that Lara did. That was an extremely rare event. What she underwent was horrific and extreme, needless to say. Mm -hmm. 
but I think it's valuable and important that we are now having the conversation for the first time, pretending the problem doesn't exist, um, doesn't empower us as women or as female <coughs> correspondents. Barring us from going to places where we face threat of sexual assault is a cowardly and short-sighted reaction. Addressing it in a thoughtful and consistent way makes sense. And so many news organizations now, including NPR, are instituting sexual harassment prevention training for their overseas female foreign correspondents for the first time ever. Mm -hmm. um, and that can only be a good thing. Okay, that's it. <laughs> and what does that mean, that, that training that you're talking about? Well, we haven't had it yet, right? So, um, <laughs> 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 okay, promised us we're gonna get it. No, I mean, what it means is this. Um, <coughs> going into conflict zones, We've, for many, many years now, we've had training. We've had to, because of insurance and liability, you have to go on these special courses given by security consultants, and they basically teach you what has to happen if you're in a war zone, how you should maneuver places, how to administer first aid. But there was never any part of it that spoke to women and, and one of the threats that they face, uh, which is unique to women, um, which is obviously the threat of sexual harassment and violence. When you're in a situation, um, in, in, a, in a conflict zone, as in all conflict zones, whether you're a female reporter or whether you're just a, a regular woman, um, there are violence that surrounds you, and women are often the target of that, of that violence, and so we you know, disproportionately face it. And I think any female correspondent that you speak to has had that um, happen to them in, in so many different circumstances, not only in the Middle East, but in Latin America. I mean, I've had, you know, I've had it happen to me in so many different um, ways. And, and I think one of the ways, uh, I mean, mostly these courses are taught by men, so hopefully they'll consult with us on what exactly <laughs> it feels like to be in this situation. But simply, like, when you go into a crowded area, you know, um, how to dress appropriately, how to make sure that you are surrounded, you know, that you have someone next to you that can protect you, um, or that at least can, uh, you know, can, if something goes wrong, can, can help diffuse the situation. I mean, there's there's a number of different things that you do, but, you know, for example, as a woman, I rarely these days, um, you know, will go in the middle of a, a mob scene as a woman in, you know, the Middle East. I, I just, because all of a sudden you become a target. You become this, the, the focus of their ire. And, and I frankly... Because you're a woman? Because you're a journalist? Because you're a Western woman? Sometimes it's just some, uh, because you're all, all, normally all three. Mm -hmm. uh, but even, this has happened to even some of my female colleagues who are Arab, um, of Arab extraction, um, you know, they will be they will be you know targeted. Women, you will be targeted because you're a woman. I think first and foremost. Mm -hmm. Secondly, because you're perceived to be a foreigner, um, that allows them some leeway. It gets them out of their norms. And thirdly, because it's it's a hysterical <coughs> situation where um, the normal values that are in place, uh, the normal checks and balances, are thrown out the window. And so, therefore, all of a sudden, you know, you're part of that dynamic. Um, for better or for worse. And so there are things that you can do to make that better, but you know, it's it's gonna be an inevitable thing. You said that Tunisia is a little different. Is that better different, worse different? Better different. I mean I think people look at Tunisia in fact many Egyptians mm -hmm. that I was just in, in Cairo, many Egyptians will, will point to Tunisia as a as a positive example of, of how the Arab Spring um, can develop. I mean they, they had fairly peaceful um, elections that they were free and fair, they brought in an Islamist party, but an Islamist party who, um, ha, you know, that rather has, has reached out to so many um, other sections of society. I mean, we still, again, have to see how this is going, but, and they still have huge massive problems with unemployment and other th issues, but we're not seeing the convulsions in Tunisia that we're seeing in, in Egypt, um, ongoing problems in Syria, Bahrain, Libya. Um, so people are looking at Tunisia and thinking, you know, this is a, this is a good model going forward. But we'll have to see. I want to <clears throat> open the conversation about the theme that, that uh, Lulu has, has introduced here. I think that's quite important. But before we end, we are going to turn to more generic issues about the Middle East because having someone who's straight from there Absolutely. will be invaluable to us. Let me, uh, let me open the floor uh, first to students. If there are students here who have a, a question. Yes. Hi, sorry, I'm in the corner. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I had a question about, um, just, I wanted to push you a little bit further on the role of women in Tunisia. Um, Not my specialty, but okay. Okay, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> Tunisia, out of all the places, the least that I know, but yeah, okay. Okay, yeah, I mean, well, I just, you know, I think, that I think that you're right, that they are making a lot of progress, and obviously it's a better case than Egypt, but um, I think there's an issue between, there's kind of a difference between the external inclusion of women Absolutely. in the process and then in kind of policy-making circles, women there. I mean, there were only... 30, there are two, two women out of 34 government ministers that were just appointed. Right. Um, the, 
just as you said, women weren't put at the head of the lists in Egypt. The same thing happened in Tunisia. Right. Um, and actually, there are of the 49 women who represent Nafta, or sorry, the 49 yeah. women in the assembly, 42 of them come from Nafta. Right. Um, because the secular parties didn't put women at the head of the lists exactly. either. So anyway, I just wanted to kind of get a sense from you about what needs to change to make that situation better. And I mean, I think, I mean, I think, I think the, the world, it, it's clear. I think I, I'm a big believer um, it, that all of these um, nascent democracies, if you will, should have had a quota system put in place. Um, I think it's absolutely, Libya is not going the same way as, as, you know, as Egypt, where they're not putting a quota system in place. I think it's unconscionable, frankly. I think you need to have guarantees um, early on in, in, in you know, when democracy is brought into a place, simply so women can be represented. Um, I don't think it's fair to sort of all of a sudden you know, throw them into to a system and say, okay, you know, you can compete, you know, uh, with men on, on equal footing. You know, Dahlia, it was funny, she, um, she went and uh, canvassed, uh, she did a poll and she asked one question. She went to all these sites and she asked people one question, women, men, everyone. And she, the question was, can you see um, Egypt having a female president? 100% of the people said no. She talked to 1,200 yeah. people. 100% of them wow. said no. 100%. So what has to change? Well, I mean, you know, fundamentally so many things. But I think it starts by putting women in leadership roles so that that is not so unimaginable. And I think a, a quota system would have been of immense benefit in, in, you know, across the board and across the region. Um, they had it in Iraq. Um, you know, I'm not saying Iraq is any great shakes in terms of uh, women's rights or anything else, but I mean, but certainly women were represented in a way that they, they would not have been if they hadn't been a quota system. So. Other students? <coughs> yes. Uh, I have a uh, question about Israel. Um, there have been reports coming out as far as uh, increasing uh, ultra-Orthodox uh, Jewish communities that have been, you know, discriminating or separating between, you know, women and men more <coughs> so than, than previously. Uh, the, the demographic trends show obviously a rapid increase in, in their segment of society. How do you how do you view that um, in 20 years affecting Israel, both think, in the yeah. Middle East and the West? I think I think we're not seeing. Uh, we would have to wait 20 years. I mean, 20 years we'll see we'll see an enormous demographic shift. You know what they call the sort of demographic time bomb in both sense with the Haredi population, the ultra Orthodox population, also with the Arab population. Each each each. Uh, each trajectory has different issues for the state of Israel. But I'll talk about the Haredis. I mean, I yes, I came back from the Middle East to then all of a sudden find myself in the middle of, you know, um, riots and battles over women's rights in, in Israel. Um, you know, Israel is a particularly interesting place in terms of women's rights, uh, and I've done stories on this before. You know, again, you think of the Arab world and you think it's a, it's a question of Islam and, and, and the women's rights. And of course, women are much more empowered in Israel. It's, it is true. but. What we are seeing, certainly, is first of all, um, the ultra-Orthodox community. Um, they have you know, their beliefs, and they believe in the segregation of women on public buses. They believe, you know, they have an entire set of beliefs which, which they feel very strongly. And I was talking with an ultra-Orthodox rabbi about this, and he said, you know, um, you know you've just been in, 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 the, in the rest of the Arab world. You know, I, I think that you know, this, we, we, should be, we should be proud of this. We could actually talk to the Islamists, because we have similar, similar ideas about them. <laughs> Absolutely bizarre thing to all of us to be having this conversation. Okay, way to bond over that. Uh, but um, I can put you in touch with a few imams. I'm sure they'll have a lot to say. But but so what I'm saying is is that they are now struggling with that, and it's an extremely complicated question for them. Not only because you know Israel views itself as a democratic and Jewish state, but women, for example, I mean, think about where women are most affected um, in in any in any society is. Family law. That's really where women get get shafted the most. Excuse my language, um, but they do. And and so, but in in Israel, for example, the, the court system of where you get divorces and everything, it's controlled by um, Jewish law. They are the ones who ultimately decide if a woman can get a divorce or not. And it's and and it's run under Jewish law, which means that they have to get a get, which means that they have to have their husband give them permission to get a divorce. So I've had friends of mine who um, have been an acrimonious divorce, and the husband doesn't want to give them a divorce, and they actually can't get divorced. They have to, you know, it's this entire system that's been put in place. And so what I mean by this is that so many different societies are struggling with how to marry religion and religious freedom with civil rights, women's rights, human rights. It's, it's one of the major conflicts that happens in all of these places. Um, in Israel, in Egypt, we're seeing now across the board. Uh, even in the United States, so we're having you know that discussion I I evolving in many different ways. But certainly in Israel, it's it's 
people were infuriated by what they perceived as, uh, you know, the ultra-Orthodox trying to mandate a woman's role, um, you know, in, in their society, and they don't think that that's right. Yes. Um, we were privileged to have Missy Ryan here, who was in Tripoli during the siege in yes. Libya, and she said that her biggest surprise on coming back to the U.S. was how distorted some of the coverage had gotten. And I'm wondering, after your trip to Egypt, when, when all the dirty laundry comes to the spin cycle, we have one version here. What would you say are the biggest gaps, particularly as concerned women, but also generally from your own gut experience? I'm, I'm sitting across the board. I mean, I, I've spent much more time in Libya last year than I have in Egypt. <coughs> I just happened to just be in Egypt, so therefore I, I use it as an example. And also, I just think it's such an important country, and watch what, what happens to Egypt, because it's vital in so many different ways. Um, Libya, you know, has always been you know, Libya, <laughs> um, and, I, and I love Libya, but it's, it's, I think it's, it's got its own set of, of distinct things. Um, you know, I think in terms of the coverage, um, absolutely, the narrative is so different when you're, when you're there and you're involved in it, um, then, and then you come back and, you, and all of a sudden the prism here is, is very different. And I don't think, and I think that's understandable, you know, the, the things that people talk about here, we're in an election year, the, um, what comes up is, is often just, it seems like a distortion and a completely erroneous narrative. Um, and it's often very difficult to, to try and counterbalance that, to, to get you know, the truth out, or, what, you know, whatever, or what people see as the truth. Um, and I think one of the, the big things, definitely, is, is you know, everyone is so terrified about the, you know, the Islamist winter, the rise of, 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 is, of political Islam um, in the Middle East right now. And I personally think it's been a long time coming. Um, this is what people have chosen for themselves. America will um, have to deal with that. Um, we might like it to be different. Um, we would have hoped that those liberals on Tahrir Square would have risen to electoral triumph and they would have written a constitution similar to our own. But um, unfortunately, that's it's a different part of the world and they have made their choice. And so I think um, one of the most you know important things really to realize is to not view this in, in simply America's interests. And, and, but how can, the United States engage. Um, this is a, an enormous opportunity, I think. Um, all of a sudden you have groups that were repressed, that were marginalized, um, but are vastly representative of their populations in political power, which means that there will now be a legitimate dialogue between two sovereign countries and their representatives. That is an opportunity, I think. Um, it could be an opportunity, it also could be a disaster. I'm not saying it's gonna be just an opportunity, it could be a disaster. But it is an opportunity to engage with these groups um, in a more substantial and real way. Students? <clears throat> no? Okay, Dorothy? That was a terrific talk. Thank you very, very much. Yeah. I think you've opened at least five avenues for future discussions. I want to ask a whatever happened to question. Okay. 1979, I was in Egypt for quite a bit of time uh, under five different auspices. One of the most interesting one I got to because an Egyptian woman, postdoctoral fellow in my department here, gave me a letter of introduction to her sister, who ran a feminist library and center wow. in Egypt, in Cairo. Every this is in 79? 79. I remember it because Three Mile Island occurred while I was doing all this. Every professional man I met, cabinet ministers, the president of the University of Cairo, the head of the Egyptian academies, their wives were professionals. <coughs> now, this can be social class, I realized at the same time. But those women really believed they were the future, and they were upper middle class, and they knew, let me, I'm gonna put this together as my second yeah. whatever happened to, because that's number one of women who really saw that the future was made. Number two is Syria. I was there exactly two years ago this month, and this morning I saw a headline that said, she began as Princess Diana, will she end as Marie Antoinette? <laughs> and I was a guest of Mrs. Asma al-Assad in February two years ago. Again, I met women cabinet ministers, I met women <coughs> professionals, I met the women who interviewed me for TV, the women who interviewed me for the radio. I thought they were on their way. Now you tell me what's happened. That's a very, that's a very good point. And, uh, and, I, and I think, oh, one of the things that's really interesting in, in, in Egypt, in particular, I mean, obviously these were these were societies that you know um, were viewed as you know all the first ladies had this kind of empowering role mm -hmm. within within the societies, and in Egypt that was certainly the case. 
And you know, we're seeing these young female activists for the, for in Egypt, for example, actually starting to have conversations with some of these women mm -hmm. um, who were there under the auspices of you know, Mubarak's wife, and et cetera. And they're actually trying to learn from them about how to navigate this new reality. Um, and these women you know, are from an upper social class. They are incredibly empowered. And I don't think you can separate mm -hmm. those things. I mean, they, it is something that comes, it is, it is in many ways a class issue. Um, but those women haven't gone away. What is happening is how, how that's going to change. I mean, in, in some ways that was a product of the repression and the fact that there was one family in power that could just say, okay, you know, women, women can have a role. She can be a cabinet minister if you're politically connected. She can, you know, mm -hmm. and it was, but it was a product simply of a repressive system. Um, this is a more organic system now, I believe, and if it manages to flourish, if it manages to actually take root, and there is a, a place now where women can actually come up from the grassroots and actually have be voted in democratically um, and seen as legitimate, then I think that'll be much more empowering to women across the board. I think having it, have, having it, um, been a product simply of these very repressive regimes um, wasn't enough, and we saw that it just wasn't enough. Just picking people and saying, "Okay, you're a woman. I'm going to put you there." And you get to, you know, um, you know, you get to have this cabinet position. You get to, you know, run a woman's charity. You get to do this about the next thing. Um, isn't isn't organic? It isn't organic, and I think it needs to be. Well, this is not about uh, the Arab Spring, but rather about potential Arab Spring. Last week on Al Jazeera, the English version, uh, I heard uh, Wali Masood who was the former ambassador to the United Kingdom of Afghanistan, uh, in response to a question about, uh, do you think the Taliban will begin to take over once the uh, Americans and, and the allies pull out? And he said, no, I don't think so. He said, because our country is more than half women now. Um, yeah, I, I proposed to not before. I was just <laughs> 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 they didn't exist before they do now. That's good. And, and I, well, I guess I had never thought about the role of women in that country because I didn't think they had much of one. But perhaps they, that's something no, I don't. I mean, I, I, I'm not. I'm, I've, I've been to Afghanistan a few times. I'm by no means yeah. a, an, an expert on the country, but I, but I will say that you know it is one of the. Really, a terrible place to be a woman. Well, that was my. And I think, and I, and I, and I usually don't like to, and I don't think it's a product necessarily. I mean, it's, it's, it's. I mean, it's a terrible place. So I mean, but it's, but I think that says it all. There's 50 percent of women now. <laughs> Good. Can, can I ask you a, a kind of a, 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 a thirty thousand feet question? It seems sometimes when you're looking at when one is looking at from perhaps this distance at the Islamic fundamentalist movement, that it's not just that women are a tenant of it, it's the core of it. Controlling women seems to be the thing, they're embracing blue jeans and free enterprise and capitalism and money and other things that are theoretically things that maybe they should hate about the West but not necessarily, but the thing that seems to be the signature of what separates the West from that part of the world is to do with women. And I don't know, I, I, I don't, maybe that's overstating it. I'm just, I I'm think it is. I, I, there's a few things that I'll, I mean, uh, there's a few things I'll say about that actually, <coughs> which is uh, when you talk, one of the things, when you talk about that idea of the narrative that gets confused and all of this, and I think that we as the media are actually culpable uh, for m messing that, that narrative. Islamists are like, it's like a, it's like a big range of things. You know what I mean? It's not just, I mean, uh, you know, Salafi, you know, or, or as we see, like the rivalry with the Muslim Brotherhood is, you know, they're, they're, they, they are, they are different, um, and they, and they, you know, Salafis do not want Western blue jeans and do not want a Western culture and actually have problems with even the democratic endeavor, um, which is why it was so surprising that A did so well and B even went to the polls at all. The ones in Libya are still grappling with that as if they're going to actually participate in the political system because of that, because it feels like it sullies their religious sense. <coughs> Um, so that's that's the first thing I'd say, and then I'd say, um, does it separate them? And there, I mean, I think all, I think much um, religious fundamentalism tends to, in general, marginalize women. I mean, I think that there is exceptions to that, but I think pretty much, if you look at any, um, again, we brought up the ultra orthodox, mm -hmm. um, you know, there, women tend to be marginalized. 
but is it simply a, you know a, a product of that? I mean, I, I'm Latin American. I grew up there. Women trafficking is an enormous problem, as I told you. You know, Guatemala, two women a day are killed violently, and this is a tiny country. Um, by you know, and, and none of it's ever investigated. So, I mean, is there an ideology that separates, um, that says women have to be placed in a certain place and 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 God's Yes, there is a system there, but I think that's the interpretation. If you talk to women, you know. I'm just going to use Dahlia. I wanted to actually brought her up just for all, for this reason. You know, she's a woman. She wears a hijab. She's she's a Muslim. She's pious. And she says, why is it mutually exclusive to have you know to to be a woman activist, to to want female empowerment, and to also be a Muslim? It isn't. Not to say it. It's not. It's it's the interpretation for for any number of different reasons and as to why that's happened. You know, but it's not necessarily that Islam itself. Is somehow you know more repressive to women. I think it's been institutionalized that way. I, I didn't mean it to be just Islam. I think you made the point about fundamentalism across, across the, board. the board. But that seems to be the thing that fundamentalism of all stripes has. Why would that be? No, I mean, I think I think as women, I think I think women. I don't think I have to tell women, you know, why why that would be. I mean, I think I think it's you know. I feel like I should get on my 101 feminist manual, but I mean, you know, the, the, the general idea is that, uh, you know, you know, you control women and, and you control a lot of things in society. You control, you know, families and, and you know, and, and the whole, and, an entire system. Um, and so I think, you know, having, having that, uh, having that system in place is, is, you know, can often be seen as, as beneficial to men. But um, that's why I think one of the reasons I wanted to give this talk, actually, is because Everything's changing in the Middle East now so radically. I mean, it really is. I mean, I can't even, it's such an exciting time. I, I've, I've been in the region for so long, and it's just, as a, as a correspondent who's covered this, I mean, you just want to cry sometimes. You're just like, oh my god, it's so exciting. You know, it's, it's really, I mean, even though these terrible things are happening, and there's clashes, and people are dying, but, but they're, they're fighting for something. People, uh, you know, have something that they, that they believe in now. They, they have hope in their hearts. They really do. They, they do believe things can get better. And so, when you look at the case of women, I think it's massively indicative of where this might all go and, why, and how important it is um, that they get some say in, in what's happening next. Um, and I think they've been fundamentally abandoned. Um, and I think, as I, as I, as I, as I pointed out, most, most men, and liberals as well, hey, later, you know, we've got other things to fight for, we've got to focus on this and that. And I don't think that that actually will fundamentally help the society m moving on. Yeah. Um, to, to the extent that we live in two different worlds or many different worlds from people in the Middle East, um, it, it seems like a lot of the change that's been happening has come about as a result of the shared world on the Internet. You know, in some of these talks that have been given here, there was the idea, the idea was um, expressed that, you know, WikiLeaks coming out might have triggered some of the first reactions in, in Tunisia. And so so, so the, the governments that are seeking to be repressive, say, in Egypt, do, do you have any sense of how they would plan to control information? Could, well, I think they are. I mean, I think what we've, what we've seen, unfortunately, I mean, there's still, I mean, these, you know, the changes that are happening are absolutely fledgling. Utterly reversible. Although people disagree with me, I believe that they're utterly f they're fledgling and reversible. Um, and I think you know, as we've seen historically, revolutions often spawn a worse <laughs> counterpart um, after them. So I think it's I think that there's everyone needs to be extremely <coughs> cautious and very focused at the moment. Um, and I think we we're we're absolutely seeing that. I mean, in Egypt, um, there's been a systematic repression of dissent um, across the board. Bloggers have been you know put in prison. We've had you know, thousands of, of uh, civilians tried in military courts um, for thuggery or for talking against the regime or all sorts of other things. Those tools of repression are absolutely still um, in place. The issue is you can't put the genie back in the box, and that's what they're grappling with now. You can't, once you've, once you've, once people, as I said to me when I covered the 18 days, it's called in Egypt, um, they said, you know, we always know the road back to Tahrir. And in fact, they did. I mean, it will take a lot now, but that's part of the problem. That's the, it, it engendering this instability, this sense of perpetual chaos, because there's all these forces now that have been let the genies out of the bottle, and, and it's not clear exactly how this is all going to play out yet. Um, but certainly, SCAF, who's in control of Egypt, um, the, you know, um, the government of Libya, which is utterly ineffectual, such as it even exists, um, you know, they're still, they're still trying to have this uh, repressive attitude. But more frightening and more interesting, actually, 
is what we saw recently the Muslim Brotherhood say about the soccer violence. I don't know if you guys followed the soccer mm -hmm. violence in Egypt. There was these enormous riots and many people, 70 some people died. It was this huge thing. <coughs> the Muslim Brotherhood said, it's foreign hands. Mm -hmm. Which is exactly what Mubarak said and exactly what the Scafa said. It's that rhetoric of when people go into power, they all of a sudden adopt that same language. And I think that's one of the most, the things that, you know, as, a, as, a, as someone looking at it is, is really, is of concern. Um, how will these people who are now democratically elected, um, how will they, now that they're in power, they're going to be the ones, they're no longer you know, the revolutionaries, um, they're the ones that are responsible. How will they deal with these sections of society that are unhappy and, and are causing, causing problems? You know? how, how will that relationship unfold? How were the foreign hands responsible for the riot? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> Secretary Clinton is obviously very articulate on the on women and their role in the economy and it increases GDP if you right. bring women in the economy. Two questions here. One is, how do you do? You see women in the economy in Egypt, and secondly, do you pick up anything from out of the State Department or anywhere in the U.S. Any U.S. officials trying to guide the way things are moving in any way on women or in any front? Can they <coughs> quietly? I mean, obviously. Oh, this yeah. Is, this I mean, I think. I mean, I think. I think it's, 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 I mean, I think America right now is, is um, you know, my friend Debbie Amos, who's from NPR, she, she loves telling this anecdote where she goes into the American embassy in Damascus and they say to her, what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> what do you know? <laughs> and I think there's a, there's a general sense that everyone goes like, what do you know? What do you know? What have you heard? What's going on? Um, because everyone's trying to piece together an extremely confusing set of um, messages. I mean, Egypt is so opaque right now. Nobody even knows how the governments run, who runs what bit of it, um, you know, how accountable the SCAF is to, can they appoint, can they, I mean, it, it's completely opaque. And you don't understand, you know, has the Muslim Brotherhood, did they have a deal with the military? Did they not have a deal? What was that deal entailed? You know, it's all rumors and there's this incredible sense of no one really knows what's happening. And, and I think America is part of that. I think undeniably um, American influence has waned. Um, I think, um, but so, so has Iran's, actually. There's, there's, some, there's, there's, there's two big losers, and I think Iran was one of them. And I think, um, and I think absolutely uh, the United States has been another. And they're trying to figure out uh, what's happening. Have they been trying to influence things? Yes, I sat in inadvertently. Um, I was waiting to interview Ayman Noor, who was um, a, uh, a presidential candidate, uh, still will be a presidential candidate, an opposition figure that was jailed for many years under Mubarak. And I was in his foyer and um, waiting to interview him. And this um, delegation from the State Department came in. And, um, and, and they were talking to him. And I happened to overhear it all, which is great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it, what was, but it was like one of these preliminary, it was really just after the uprising began. And so the State Department sent their people to sort of figure out what, what was going on and, and, and who the players were. And Ayman Noor asks, asks the State Department that he needs a million, uh, you know, a million dollars per candidate um, to be able to, to bankroll, um, you know, his a new party that would legitimately contest the elections. <coughs> and he's having this conversation with the State Department. Now, I didn't hear them say, yeah, we've got it in our slush fund. Here, here's a suitcase, I'm in. It, they didn't say that. Um, but just to say <laughs> that I mean, there was no smoking gun in that conversation, but just the very fact that a presidential candidate uh, would be having that conversation with members of the State Department, um, I think, you know, was incredibly indicative. I, do I think, um, you know, that, that shows that indeed the allegations and, and the great fears right now in Egypt that uh, America is meddling in Egyptian affairs, um, you know, I think that's overstated. Um, but I think the fact that they've arrested um, these 17, 17 I think it is, 17? Um, 17 um, people who work for, you know, uh, the National Democratic Institute, the National Republican Institute, um, you know, uh, it, it should be a word of caution right now to the United States as to how they proceed. Things that might have been viewed as benign before, democracy building, all these words, you know, a lot of people feel like, why do we have to learn democracy from you? We had our revolution. We know how to take it to the bank. You know, we don't need, uh, we don't need America right now to tell us what to do. And they're very frightened of foreign meddling. Because in fact, and it's not only America, it's Qatar, it's Saudi, it's Iran. Everything's in play right now. Everyone's involved. Everyone's trying to stake out their position in this shifting landscape. And so, in a, in a real sense, uh, there are foreign hands. Yeah, I wanted to kind of take us back, first of all, terrific, you know, 
presentation. I want to take us back to sort of your marital bed as a <laughs> <laughs> metaphor for sort of this larger. Um, it's going to be know, that kind of talk, huh? <laughs> exactly so, because we, you know, you haven't sort of filled out for me at least um, what you might run into internally within the staffs, where we still know that predominantly. You know, men are at the top of the mastheads and in many of the editing roles. And even though you've named a number of women from NPR who are doing the yeah. stories, you know, you're clearing your stories through <coughs> a various hierarchy up here. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering what you feel is the ability that you have to really tell the stories of what women's lives are like today, you know, through your own internal mechanisms within your organization and what you're hearing from other women reporters. How I tell how I tell women's stories, like how I yeah, sell the idea. Oh, constrained. Because oh, your no. husband basically right, looks no. at well, and rolls no, his no, eyes. I think, I mean, no, I mean... I, Jonathan screwing you over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan accepted. So John, Jonathan's exempt from this. Right. Um, no, I think... Um, no. I mean, I think, first of all, NPR um, is, is very woman. I mean, we're like yes. run by women, and it's like some people would say there's like, you know, estrogen central. Um, I, I, you know, people complain like, oh my god, you can't get promoted unless you're a woman. But um, it's terrible. But, um, but so I think, but certainly, no, the layers of my, of my immediate yeah. superiors um, are men. I mean, uh, one, we have one female editor, Didi Skanky, who I adore, who's the Latin America editor, and every single other one of them is men. Um, up the line until you now have the acting um, vice president for news, who's a wonderful person, Margaret Lowe Smith. Um, but she doesn't have a hand in the day-to-day -day coverage, if you will. Um, so I think absolutely it's an issue. Um, I've never been told I can't do a woman's story. I've never been told that's boring. I've never been told, you know, oh, no, oh, that again. Um, I think my husband was just, he was really angry that I put that in. Actually, I was going to start my speech with that. But um, <laughs> now you make me seem like I'm unenlightened. Well, there's ways to get back at your spouse. Um, but I think, I mean, I do think that, um, I definitely think that uh, you are going through a male hierarchy, and there was a collective gasp after Lara Logan. Um, mm -hmm. People really didn't know that that was something that was happening. Again, what happened to her was egregious, it was extreme and horrific. And I'm, not, I'm not equating anything that I've been to through what Lara went through. But I have, again, I have absolutely been repeatedly and regularly harassed. Um, and, and so I think um, all of a sudden, news organizations, and I know this to be true, um, said, actually, we're not going to send women to mm -hmm. um, this particular place. After Lindsay Adaria, what happened to her in Libya, yeah. I don't know if you remember this, yeah. from the New York Times, she's a photographer. They were captured by Gaddafi's uh, mm -hmm. soldiers. Uh, she was, you know, threatened uh, with rape and was groped repeatedly, and it was very frightening. Luckily, nothing happened to her. Um, but, but all of a sudden, I know for a fact, you know, some editors were like, I I'm not sure that we should send women in that you know, in, into that environment. And that's a very damaging and worrying development, frankly. Um, but I think uh, there was also uh, an outcry, I think, from many, from many of us female correspondents who said, hey, um, the reason we get sent there is because not only can we do the job as well as any man, needless to say, better, um, but, um, but we, can, we have something to bring to the conversation, which is this idea that we do, we can have access, we do talk to certain segments of the society, we do see things in a different way. I mean, I do feel that when I go out there, I am looking for stories mm -hmm. that, that, will, that will take a wider view of what's going on, that it's not just Israel, Iran, you know, um, pundit this and what will happen and the bombing, all super valid stuff, I'm not saying it's not important, um, but I, I think it's also so valuable to have those conversations um, that show you, that give you a window into people's experiences, um, into how they live their lives, uh, that inform you about the culture that mm -hmm. you're trying to understand, because that will tell you so much, oftentimes so much more um, than simply listening to some analysis piece. Anyway, that's what I predicated my radio career. So. <laughs> um, you mentioned control, and I want to ask you about another kind of control, birth control. Oh. Is there any change in family planning and all this? No. <laughs> when in the Middle East, no. I mean, no. No, um, no greater or less, no, you less had a, you access, no change in the. I mean, I, to be, I, I haven't attitude. studied this issue particularly, but I will. But I mean, the, the recent issue with the virginity test that happened in, mm -hmm. in Egypt is a perfect example of how. Virginity test. 
Yes. The virginity testing. They right. they had um, this was this was in March. Um, they, uh, they the, uh, many of the women who were demonstrating Takmir were taken, you know, were arrested as, as many women have been, and then all of a sudden they were given under the auspices of the military. Doctors actually gave them virginity tests to see if they were pure women, and this is one of the methods, you know, actually all over the world where women are are are, are oppressed politically. You know, oh you're you're discredited because you are sexually you know, uh, sexually uh, promiscuous, you are uh, sexually questionable. And I think one of the one of the really interesting things, you, if, I don't know if you remember Iman al-Ubaini, al you know, the woman who came in in Libya and said she'd been raped and burst into the Tripoli Hotel. I interviewed her there. And um, and and the, the regime, the Qaddafi regime, systematically basically went out in the media and said that she was a whore, that she had been a prostitute, that she had been sleeping with lots of men. And it's a, and it's a very, and this is again not unique to the Middle East. Um, it's a way of attacking people's credibility. I mean, you look at it in, in the court system, you know, when a woman's been raped and what's, you know, it's legal here now, but I mean, what, what, you know, you look at people's sexual history, you say, oh, um, they've, been, they, they've been having a lot of sexual relations, they've been doing a lot, so it's a, it's, a, it's a very typical way to discredit women. And so we're seeing that, and, and, and in terms of birth control, I mean, I, I, I can't really speak to the issue, although it's an interesting one, and I might look into it, but I, I you know, I can't speak specifically to that. Did you have a question? Yeah, just following up on what Melissa was asking, the conversation with your editors. Uh, why didn't women correspondents say, by the way, I was at a Hamas rally today, and again, I got groped, and it's crazy. Anything you can do for us? I mean, why did that I think it was a, it was a um, I think for, and I think it still is, by the way. I think, mm -hmm. um, but like I said, there's a debate among, amongst us female correspondents. I was having it in the car here, because I was talking about, I was thinking about what it is that I wanted to talk about. Mm -hmm. And I'm very passionate on this subject. I also had PTSD for many years, and so I also talk about that pretty openly, just because I think it's a conversation that needs to be had. Um, but in terms of this uh, this particular issue, you know, she was like, "Well, I don't think you should talk." She's a female uh, photographer, really ballsy, and um, and she was like, "I don't think you should talk about that. I think you should, you know, you should show how we're the same and we're empowered and we can we do the same as men and it doesn't matter." And you know, you need to sort of debunk that whole thing. But it doesn't mean that it's not true. I mean, why should why should we hide it? Why should we pretend? What what needs to happen is something else. And I think that there was a fear, in the same way as post traumatic stress disorder, as a fear that if you if you had that conversation with your editor, all of a sudden your editor would say, actually, well then you shouldn't be there. You know, and that and that was the knee jerk reaction. I mean, after the Lara Logan Lara Logan thing, um, Reporters Without Borders actually said, you know, you should urge caution in sending women to this book, and it, it created an enormous outcry. Quite rightly, um, you know. What is that? That's that's incredible. That's just crazy. So that so there's that there's that fear. I mean, luckily I have never I've never had um, my editor ever. Um, in fact, quite the opposite. Um, tell me, um, you know, that I shouldn't go somewhere. But um, but what you do, but what I think is good, and I think should happen, is that you do have the conversation, which is, be careful. Are you taking precautions? Should you? Do you know what I'm saying? Are you thinking? You know. It, what is the situation there now? And I think that's a very valuable discussion to have with my editor, frankly. I'm, I'm grateful for that conversation. I don't take it amiss. I think it's a good conversation to have. In the same way that if a man was going in and it was, you know, and there was, a, uh, it's, you know, bullets flying and all that stuff, you'd be like, oh, you take, you know, do you have your flak jacket? Do you have this? Do you have that? It's, it's this, it should, it should be part and parcel of the same discussion. Just because it's a, a, an issue particular to women doesn't mean that it's in any way discriminatory, that we should be ashamed of it, and that we shouldn't, you know, confront it. Um. Okay, one more, and then we're going to shift gears here a little bit. Yeah. Just curious as to how this is affecting the next generation of female correspondents in, in conflict zones. Since this is, this is the biggest international story of, of this generation, and if our international news organizations are uh, getting a little hesitant to, uh, to, to dispatch women, the other route is that women or, or just generally young journalists will show up on their own. In, in I think that's what we're seeing. I mean, certainly Libya was an, 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 an example of that, and we're seeing that in two ways. First of all, because the, um, the system right now, because journalism is, you know, where it is, I don't have to tell you, um, <laughs> so many people are using, um, so, so many people are using freelancers, so we saw for the first time in the Libya correspondent, I mean, not for the first time, but really in just such huge numbers, I've never seen that in Iraq or any other place, enormous numbers of freelancers coming in with strings or looking for strings or having no strings and just going to these to these conflict zones. And how many were women? Um, well, you know, some uh, quite a few. I mean, not, not I, I don't know what the percentage is, but, you know, Ruth Sherlock, who now writes for the LA Times, but was writing, you know, for the for many British papers, and, and there, was, uh, there was a bunch of other ones. That, you know, young women who were going there for the first time, yes, absolutely. But um, are they going, and they were, and, and because they were freelancers, they were with the rebels, they were sleeping with them, you know, they were sort of embedded with the rebel forces um, in a way that I don't particularly think is wise, you know, but um, just because, you know, 
they were crazy, but um, <laughs> you know, but um, but they were going to the front lines every day, and they were staying with these units and, and moving forward. And I think that um, you know we did see women doing that. But I mean, it's an absolute concern um, that editors, now that they're aware of the problem, will be more reluctant. And I know, and I and I know for a fact that certain that that has been the case in certain news organizations. I don't want this to end without taking at least five minutes to talk about what you and I were discussing before. Um, and I know that you don't speak for, you know, you're not a soothsayer. You don't know what's going to happen. But your sort of impressions of what the situation is like on the ground in this issue of uh, Iran, in Israel, and also your description of what you hear when you were in Egypt about about what's happening with relations with Israel in particular. I mean, I think uh, what I was mentioning to him uh, is it's in the same way that it's a, a very different region now uh, for the United States. It's a very uh, perplexing and worrying region for Israel. Um, and and we just saw um, Mr. Netanyahu actually say today um, that in these changing times, what we need to project is strength. That, that is the most important thing that we need to project because we are now faced and surrounded by all these different actors changing. What does that mean? Well, it's a good question. And I think what we're seeing now are two things. First of all, there's a fund that there will be a, a definite change in the relationship between Israel and, and Egypt. I've, as I was telling, to, as I was speaking earlier, analysts that I respect, um, who I don't think are hysterics, uh, said, talk to me now very frankly in Israel about the coming war with Egypt and when that was going to happen. Think about that. Think about how unimaginable that must have been. It was two years ago. It was a, it was a you know, that peace treaty was an absolute bedrock of, of what was happening. And now, um, they're worried that there might be a war with Egypt. I don't know if it'll happen. You know, but they say, well, you know, you're going to have a military that's been discredited after, you know, coming into power. They're going to need to redeem themselves. You're going to have um, the Muslim Brotherhood who's going to be facing internal pressure. How do you, what has always been the great way to rally everyone together? It's by, you know, facing a, con a common enemy, which is Egypt, I mean, which is Israel. Um, so they were talking about that in a real and substantial way. There's a great deal of concern within Israel about, about, relations um, with Egypt. And they don't know what's going to happen with Syria. I mean, Syria is in play. Um, you have, of course, a very hostile regime, um, an Iranian client that was in power, um, that if things go the way they might, uh, will change. Um, but who's to say we'll be any more friendly <laughs> um, to, to Israel? And then, of course, you have the Iranian question. And I would say um, that the Iranian question right now is, and has been, um, the prism through which all um, sort of security concerns in Israel are, are focused through right now. The, the Israeli-Palestinian question is an absolute sidebar to them. Um, there is very little interest, appetite, um, which is evinced by the fact that there's been no progress um, in engaging in that Palestinian question. That, that there's internal reasons for that and external reasons, um, but Iran is the main focus. And um, I came back from Egypt to Israel. I hadn't been, I'd, I'd been away for a while. And, um, and I called my editor, as I was saying, and I said, you know, things feel, you know, dicey. People, you know, people are tense, people are worried. It, and for me, I, I'm not a, I don't have a crystal ball, I don't have deep knowledge of, you know, whether or not um, the Israeli government will launch an attack. But certainly, um, in conversations that I had with intelligence people, conversations that I had uh, with government officials, uh, the rhetoric has changed. Um, and as a journalist, that's what I do. I, I look at um, the rhetoric and I look at what people are saying and how what they're saying is different, um, what language they're using. And the language they're using now, before they would be very careful, very cautious about what they would say, that is no longer there. Um, does that mean that a strike on uh, Iran's nuclear facilities is imminent? I don't know. Um, but I would say that we're closer to that possibility now than we, we have been. Yes. Do you have a thought about what might happen to the Christian populations in many of these countries? Uh, there was a story yesterday about the Christians in Syria supporting Assad uh, out of the fear of what might happen. Absolutely. Um, I mean, again, you know, you have what's happening in, in Syria is, is a is an uprising that's ongoing. You see what's what's happened in Egypt in the in the after it, and what's happened within the Christian community. And there's been enormous Christian, um, you know, violence perpetrated on Christians and minority groups. Um, and as I, as, I, as I tell people, um, you know, when you lift the lid off the 
off the pot, um, you're going to get all these great things like people empowered and feel like democracy is wonderful <coughs> and, and they're going to find their voice and there's going to be new groups forming and political you know, expression and then you're going to have these terribly ugly um, confrontations that have simmered you know, for a long time and, and we are seeing that. Minorities are you know, facing difficulties in the same way as women. Um, and, and there is a great deal of concern. I mean, uh, the day of um, when the fr when the election results came out, I was with a Christian um, Coptic friend of mine, uh, Egyptian Coptic friend of mine, and she said, you know, her parents were thinking of leaving the country um, when they saw how well the Salafis had done. Um, you know, it is it is absolutely, um, without a shadow of a doubt, a, a real concern for the Christian community there as to how uh, they can preserve, you know, their rights and how they can live, you know, protected and safely. And at the moment, we're seeing you know repeated clashes over and over. It's a, it's a constant flashpoint. Lulu Garcia Navarro, thank you very much.